Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, after a long, bitter campaign to get him on the show, we welcome freelance writer Dan Griliopoulos. Dan, at long last, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and very well done pronouncing my name correctly. Uh, I I was nervous about it, but I decided I'd swing for the fences. Uh, So yeah, this episode (laughs) was delayed by a variety of factors, including uh, Dan's responsibilities as a new dad and my own hectic uh, schedule last week. But the biggest issue was probably tonight's topic itself, Mindscape's 1995 Warhammer fantasy game, Warhammer Shadow of the Horned Rat. Uh, This is a game that I've long wanted to do an episode of Three Moves Ahead on, but it was not really available to play anywhere, and when it finally was re-released on Good Old Games a few weeks ago, uh, I got very excited and decided to see who who in the gaming uh, games journalism world has played it. And the answer, apparently, is just Dan. Uh, which is <laughs> which is interesting because this is a game that I, I think sort of was had kind of a a major reputation and was ahead of its time in a lot of ways. But I'm not even sure it it has become a cult classic. Uh, it's it seems to be the game that like a lot of people just completely missed. Uh, so so Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Shadow of the Horned Rat is and sort of what makes it special when when you juxtapose it against its contemporaries. I guess looking at it today, it's a precursor to the Total War games and that kind, those kind of huge-scale battle games with uh, large campaigns. But it has a story, and it has good characters, and it has uh, the depths of the Warhammer world to explore. Um, it's also ridiculously hard. So that might explain why no one's played it, because most people who start playing it get one or two missions in and just have to give up. Because the game only lets you, only rewards you if you're taking the best path through it, if you're succeeding at everything. Uh, and if you start failing any way whatsoever, you just continue to fail until you have to stop playing. Yeah, and you know, it's one of the interesting things about it is that it, it seems like this attempt to mash up so many different genres like it 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 really defies categorization because in in some ways like the battle games are a bit like total war they also remind me a bit of myth uh where there's these sort of they're these standalone tactical missions where you run your little medieval troops around a map and uh and uh, it's like a little 3d map and you fight these warhammer fantasy armies but then it's also a bit like um you know that fine that, that fine genre, the uh, paramilitary mercenary commander simulator uh, that was just positively <laughs> flourishing in the uh, '90s with games like Strike Commander and uh, Jagged Alliance. This is you know you're you're sort of a small businessman in this, and you're you're sort of building mm-hmm. up your mercenary company and deciding what contracts you're going to take and deciding what new units you're going to spring for. But then everything is also persistent. Everything carries over from one mission to another, and this does seem like a game that, uh, you know, it's interesting. I think it came out years later in the era of, like, you know, heavy patching and and post-release support. I think they probably might have wanted to rebalance this one a little bit because, uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. This is a game that pretty much encourages you encourages you to have a death spiral. I discovered real early I had to use all of my save slots uh, just to make sure that, you know, if I suffer some casualties in a mission, I sure better be able to go back and reload it, uh, even if it's five missions later, because I'll realize belatedly, like, oh, wait, I've actually completely screwed myself because I lost three cavalry in that mission, and that means I'm doomed. 
Yes, you expect the cavalry are fantastically expensive, and if you lose a wizard, you might as well just start again. There's there's no point because they're so expensive and they level up so slowly because everything levels up as well. Even your troops level up, and as they level up, they get more expensive. So it costs even more to replace them. So you can get to the point, as you say, where you're losing a cavalry man, and you go, well, I I can't continue. I I need to load because this is another two missions down the line. I'm I'm not going to be able to keep fighting. Uh, especially and also your troops get wounded they don't just get killed so you can be right. you can have all the money in the world in the game and you can't play, you can't win a mission because all your guys are out wounded and you can't replace them because they're just they're, they're wounded that doesn't work it's, it's it was beautiful and it needed some patches certainly at the time to fix it and we didn't have patches in the late 90s you just had you just had the iron will to complete games that's that's what we all <laughs> had in, in the 90s yeah uh so I'm curious when when I proposed this topic to you did did you have do you have fond memories of uh, of this game? Oh, I, I mean, this is I think it was this and uh, the Space Hulk, the first Space Hulk game, the original Space Hulk game, and then Revenge of the Blood mm -hmm. Angels were the Warhammer games I remember from that era, which I just played to death because they were very tough and you got so much out of them because every mission was a proper fight. the The Space Hulk games were. Uh, do you remember the original Space Hulk game from EA? I think it was. No, actually. Uh, so this is like this is all right when I was becoming aware of uh, like PC games, and I'm not even sure how widely available those were in the states uh, because I don't think Warhammer was that huge a thing uh, in mainstream gaming culture in the states until like later in the '90s. It's, it's kind of it reminds me of the Burgess Shale. This uh, there were all of these games in the UK which were made by independent developers or made by small studios and only released over here. And as you say, Warhammer, why would it be released anywhere else? No one else was playing Warhammer apart from the UK. So just all of these weird creatures and weird creations that no one's played and no one's copied came out. And the weird thing about uh, The Shadow of the Horned Rat is it's such a perfect precursor to the Total War games, but nobody who worked on it has done anything since. I mean, they, they may have made a few Harry Potter games, but there's no heritage to it. There's no effect. There's nobody. Nobody came off this. No one continued the thing. It just died. Um, even though it looks like today, like a really interesting mashup of an RPG and a total war game and a tactical war game and all these things. Yeah, that was the thing that really astonished me when I, I fired it up. You know, all these years later, because what what I remembered was that it was this really nifty, you know, three like tactical uh, battle game. But what surprised me is how much it actually does sort of uh, presage what, what's going to come with games like Myth, with games like Total War. Because, yeah, it, it has a lot of the same, it has a lot of the same, like, almost like design vocabulary, right? Like, you're spending a lot of time, like, you're, you know, the, main, the, the main point of, of tactical management in this game seems to be, like, managing your troops facing and, uh, you know, how deep you want their formation. You're constantly sort of, you know, dragging your troops along the map and sort of redeploying them and uh, having them react quickly to, to movements of the enemy. And I was really surprised by, by how modern it seemed. But, yeah, nothing followed on its heels, and I don't know if that's because maybe it was just it was just too hard and chased off most of its potential audience, or people just you know didn't didn't play it. I, I find it very strange that this is that this game doesn't sort of cast a longer shadow. It's funny because there was obviously a sequel, which was Warhammer Dark Omen, which I think was published by EA, uh, which had better graphics. Uh, it just it was it was like a couple of years later, so it was it was just much better in 
how it looked and how it played. But that was meant to have an expansion, then that expansion never came out. Uh, I remember being very disappointed at the time. And then it, and then the whole series just died. And I, it's, it was never clear why they stopped making it. And I guess it's really hard to find out because most of those developers aren't in the industry anymore. Um, it was 1995, so 20 years ago now. Um, so, yeah, uh, but a lot of that stuff about facings and formations, that came straight from that Warhammer tabletop game. You know, you, if, if your guys got flanked, they would be scared and they might run away. And that fed into all of the routing and the morale, which, again, presages total war and is such a key part of the game. You win most battles in the game, not by killing everybody stone dead, but you make, make them run away. You terrify them by pinning them down with infantry and charging to their side. So it's a classic tactical game. Yeah, so this is something I, I wanted to ask you about because I never was able to play much of the Warhammer tabletop games uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, when I was a teenager, I, like my friends got make it, my friends came very close to talking me into joining their 40k game, and we made mm-hmm. it as far as the local game store, and then I got to look at what the figures cost. <laughs> the, the unpainted figures and they're like oh you're going to be imperial guard it's all going to be vehicles for you let me introduce you to like here's an imperial guard tank cost and i was like you know i think i'm just going to stick with uh video games <laughs> but i am curious like yeah how how faithfully translation is shadow of the horned rat uh of, of the of the tabletop game it's pretty faithful, but it's also it adds in elements that the tabletop game would love to have in it. So it deals with all the formations. Uh, it deals with the speed, you know, the running and walking so that your guys can they can go at a normal pace or they can charge and they get charge bonuses. Um, but then it adds in things like uh, archers can fire over hills, so it's got 3D terrain even though it's got 2D sprites. And archers and mortars uh, can go over hills, but crossbows can't. And cannons can't because they have a flat arc for their fire. So that stuff wasn't in in Warhammer because there was just no real way of making the rules work to make that work on a tabletop game. So it got, it's more Warhammer than Warhammer. And it has all of the same races and all of the same style. It's got that kind of grimdark humor to it. It's, um, it's, it's a very Warhammer uh, strategy game. Yeah, and as flawed as the execution was, I found that I was really enjoying the um, the mercenary company management aspect to it because <laughs> there's there's a few interesting dynamics that are, that are introduced. One is I I just love those I love those old '90s interfaces. By the way, where your interface is a room, right? And so you go around the room and touch things that like you know you you are there and you touch the things on the interface that you know somehow correlate to something a commander would be worrying about right so the map is your next mission and you know over there there's mm-hmm. a bunch of rolled up papers and that's where you sort of look at contracts uh and then you've got a uh sort of miserly looking dude sitting in your caravan and it's Dietrich the paymaster and he's the guy you talk to about how <laughs> the you know how the balance sheets are how the balance sheets are all are all coming out but uh the the interesting thing is there's this sort of multi-stage process before you go into a mission uh, that's like almost like bidding on a contract if you're a contractor. First, you have to choose which contract you want, and so you hear the hear the briefings and everything uh, about you know various people offering you missions or chains of missions, and you're sort of mm-hmm. trying to weigh like 
how much trouble is this one li- liable to to get me into? You you so, like I found I definitely found myself starting to listen to like subtext in the mission descriptions. Like as a client trying to get me involved in something I'm really not ready to take on yet, uh, I definitely tried to go for low hanging fruit <laughs> wherever I could. Yeah, and then once you take the mission, you decide which of your troops you want to bring onto the mission. And they all cost mm-hmm. a fair bit, so your profit margin is far greater if you can leave one or two of your units at home and take the field with a reduced force. But, of course, that's also going to make the mission much harder, and a harder mission could result in higher casualties, which could result in a disaster down the road. And so it's this interesting like, multi-step process before you ever even get to the battlefield that I really enjoyed. Yeah, uh, I think uh, several of the mission sequences as well, like I think there's a bit halfway through the game. As I said, it's been a long time since I've played this, and as we'll come to later, it just doesn't run on my machine So uh, at the moment. Uh, but halfway through the game, there's a sequence where you have to choose between going to help dwarves and elves. And if you've played the game before, you know that you've got to go and help the dwarves, because the dwarves are rich, and every single one of their missions gives you more money than you'll spend on the mission. Whereas the elves are stingy, and every single one of their missions gives you less. And you have to do both of them, so you need to do the dwarves first, otherwise you can't afford to do all the elf missions with the people you'll need to complete. Um, it's, it, <laughs> that's, you know, you have to discover that by playing the game and failing at the game, and who wants to fail at a campaign game this long? Yeah, and the other thing is the missions themselves seem designed to trip you up into failure, right? This is not one of the mm. pet peeves we have on this podcast is is sort of puzzle like tactical game design, right? Where there is a correct answer. And so even though you're playing mm-hmm. it being commander and reacting to things you see in front of you, really what you have to do is find the correct solution, and that you do by trial and error. And I definitely feel like Shadow of the Horned Rat is the latter sort of tactical game. Uh, And it starts right in the first mission when you have to protect, uh, you know, it's sort of the classic protect a meaningless frontier village, right? And that's a good way to Mm -hmm. get your feet wet. And (laughs) the enemies you face are completely trivial. Uh, I think it's like a, a... uh, a unit of mounted troops and a bunch of like crummy little uh, like uh, goblins, or are they? I think it's go- it's go- I think it's goblins. The first mission, and yeah. It, yeah, it goes downhill pretty fast. From yeah, there. and so uh, the, the goblins come out, and you can rout these guys easily. But the thing is, the cavalry will show up, and if you don't intercept them immediately, they'll run down to the village and burn it to the ground uh, and and destroy all the neat little three D buildings, which you know for the time was was amazing. <laughs> Uh, and kill mm-hmm. the little farmers that are out there in the field. So it's, it's very neat stuff. But I had to play that mission alone like four times because I needed to figure out the exact right place to have my cavalry positioned to intercept and destroy the uh, the goblin cavalry. And mm-hmm. if you didn't get it just right, the goblins would somehow get around you and cause you to fail the mission. And, you know, that's just mission one. And it ramps up very quickly from there. Yeah, and it goes all the way through. And there are certain missions which I remember playing. I think there's one mission where you're fleeing towards a castle. Um, and simply, the only way I could find to, do, to beat that mission, which I must have played 20 or 30 times back in the day, was to sacrifice one of my units, to leave them behind and just to kind of as a, as oh, a last stand while everybody else makes it to the, the castle. And that was the only unit I could think that would survive long enough was one of the units that had been with me since the beginning of the game, one of the Grudgebringer infantry. Oh, no. So so I was like, okay, all right, 
I've got to get rid of them. But by that point in the game, you have enough troops that this is the only mission where you're going to really suffer. So, um, but yeah, there's lots of there's lots of missions where you're having to work out what to do and then replay the mission. And because of that, it's a really defensive game. I mean, a lot of the time you're sending out like Grudgefinger Cavalry or another cavalry unit or a gyrocopter to go out and trigger enemies to appear and then run back and hide behind your shield walls and use your archers and cannons and wizards to uh, to pepper them with shots before they get anywhere near you because it's too expensive to get into close combat. Yeah, and that's, I think, another... There's a few frustrations once once you get on the battlefield. One is that they have this amazing idea for a tactical game and absolutely no idea how you'll control it. Like, the camera controls are some of the least intuitive I've <laughs> ever had to deal with. Like, And, and part of that is just because I have now had, you know, 10, 15 years of using, you know, uh, WASD camera controls or mouse wheel camera controls or just finding the right edges of the map to scroll. But none of that applies in, in this where you actually have to click little camera buttons on the, uh, on, on the, on the interface panel, or you can move the camera around on the, uh, the mini map, but that is so disorienting, uh, that it can be really, you know, you'll just be whipping the camera everywhere. Uh, and it's, it's very hard to sort of keep a handle on, on where you're pointed, uh, via, via the minimap. So that is, that is one challenge that, that happens once, once you get to the battlefield. Uh, but the other thing is that, and, and you'll have to tell me if this is sort of true to Warhammer. <sighs> With Total War games... I'm usually pretty accustomed to things making some kind of intuitive sense. And so, like, if I can flank an enemy unit, they will collapse very quickly. Uh, certainly if I hit them from behind, they'll just shatter immediately. Uh, but, you know, cavalry shouldn't really ever be fighting spear infantry. Uh, you know, just basic understandings like that. Um, this game doesn't really seem to follow any of that logic, that that I can really tell. Like I have, I had a really hard time figuring out. Uh, it, it seems to follow more of a. You have good units, you have better units, and you have best units, and it really doesn't matter what flavor of unit they are, and that really threw me. I remember a mission where my crossbowmen were completely caught out uh, by a bunch of infantry, and so I figure like, oh god, I just I just lost all my new crossbowmen. They're doomed because uh, they're they're in close combat with infantry, and I turn around, I finish up what I'm doing. I turn around and my new crossbowmen have just massacred like two regiments of goblins. And I'm, I'm wondering like, how the hell did that happen? Like my, my grudge bringers struggle to deal with one and you guys just effortlessly just like machined through like three of them. I think that's because they're basically, because I think there's a dwarf crossbowmen. Uh, I, I think they were humans. Oh, okay. No, that's, that's just, you're just damn lucky then. Okay. <laughs> uh, because the dwarf crossbowmen in the game are meant to be as good in close combat as they are at uh, at range, but yeah, no, I think you're just lucky, and, and that's um, there is a certain luck thing. And I seem to remember, as I said, I've not had a chance to play recently. Isn't there also a button you can hammer, which oh increases the strength of a unit? That absurd button. <laughs> yeah, the hero button. The hero button, which kind of just gives them a, like a temporary buff or something, yeah, and, uh, and, as long as you can hammer it fast enough. And the manual tells you. There's no downside to using it. So there's this there's this um 
there's this button on the interface panel of a somewhat of an arm doing a bicep curl, right? <laughs> uh, just as just yes. so you know, it's it's you know to to be strong, and it's to allow the hero in your unit to start doing the hero things. And there's no downside to using it except for the fact that you have to have that unit selected and you have to just keep mashing it. And the manual is like, yeah, just you know keep hitting it. I mean, the only downside is that you can't control other units, so it costs you attention. But, yeah, you can hit it as often as you want. Uh, and it's, it's, it's this odd little thing. It's like the, it's like the uh, closed door button on, on an elevator. Like, I was never even sure if I, it was doing anything. Uh, but certainly <laughs> it say, felt yeah. good to hammer it when things were getting hairy. Yeah, and if you, if you don't have anything else to do and if you're a little bit worried, you just, you just hammer that button for a bit. Um, Yes, I mean the Warhammer universe. Um, good units will tend to be crap units pretty much all the time. There isn't there isn't a thing where spears are particularly good against cavalry, say. Um, but cavalry are pretty much good against everybody, and archers and artillery are pretty much good against everybody. And wizards kill everything if they're lucky. Um, wizards have to be lucky all the time, uh, and they, but and if they're not lucky, they end up pin cushions because archers just shoot them to pieces. So. It's um, it's a bit of a random game, yeah. It's a bit um, every there are a lot of glass cannons, and then there are an awful lot of just cannons. There are just units like the Grudgebringer Cavalry who are crazy good at fighting almost any other enemy in the game. But as you say, when they die, they're expensive. Yeah. Did you did you do much with leaving units at home? Because as much as I wanted to try to like underbid the job and like increase the the profit margin. Usually mm -hmm. I needed just about everything I had access to, or otherwise the casualties would get out of control. Uh, I think the only times you can do it are where you're, where you've played the mission before <laughs> and you're fairly confident that you can just kill all the enemies with cannon artillery and wizards. Um, uh, and you have to be extremely confident because quite a lot of the time you don't get, you know, you don't get a choice about um, when they attack you. Um, so, yeah, I, I I think when I played it many years ago, I did leave units out occasionally. Mainly if they were units that I thought were really expensive, and I I, don't, I honestly don't know if I need you enough. More often, I would, it would be like towards the end of the game, not not buying particular units like the halberdiers or the great swords, which are really good, really strong, really expensive, and yet because you have to pay retainer to every unit you've got just to keep them in your army. Uh, it just meant you were losing money on having them, especially when you, you couldn't put them in the battlefield because there's a maximum number of units. So it was just like, okay, maybe I won't even take those guys. So, yes, I, I, I occasionally would leave people out, but only when you were absolutely certain and you definitely needed the money. You mentioned there, there, there's cannons in the game and even gyrocopters, and this is the other <laughs> odd thing because... Um, so Creative Assembly are, are making a, a Total War Warhammer game, but I talked to a, um, a, a modder months ago for Rock, Paper, Shotgun uh, who worked mm -hmm. on a massive total conversion of uh, Rome 1 that would turn it into mm -hmm. a full-fledged Warhammer fantasy strategy game. And he said it, that yeah. trying to get flying units into the game to get some of the, the odder signature Warhammer Fantasy units into the Total War engine was just this nightmare, uh, that it was completely mm -hmm. unable to really handle what was going on with those units. And actually, that's not something we see too much of in tactical war games, where usually you don't see 
you know, you know, you don't see air power on a medieval battlefield, right? And and there's a good reason for that, but that also means you usually don't see a game that even tries to bring it in. You don't see units that operate on a completely different scale, like cannons, uh, put into you know a, a battlefield where they're going to be dealing with units that have limited range. But this definitely sort of embraces that warhammerishness of there's going to be big goofy units on the on the battlefield. And there's also going to be crazy, like, super weapons on the battlefield that make almost no sense, but will be really deadly. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, yeah, in the final battle, the Skaven have some crazy weapon. But, um, and the Skaven, I think yeah, the Storm Vermin Skaven come with kind of uh, some sort of gun that is constantly firing at you. And even when you, even when you defeat them and they're running away, they still fire at you. And then if, when you defeat them completely, they explode. And you're just like, I'm just going to kill these guys with cannons because I'm not going to get anywhere near them. Um, but yeah, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, the Total War games haven't had flying in them, um, but the new one does. It has griffins and it has wyverns and all of this kind of stuff, and it has all the giants, and so it's, it's, it really is following on from this quite a lot. Um, but you could almost say this is very much just a a British take on... Tolkien's fantasy stuff is just a bit grimdark, a bit silly. Um, it's very much Legolas uh, surfing down the, the trunk of the elephant kind of silly stuff. There are giants, there are trolls that vomit on people, there are, as you say, gyrocopters, which are these little dwarf copters that have a steam cannon and can drop bombs, and it's kind of... It's a different era. It's uh, Leonardo da Vinci's creations come to life and fighting against orcs. It's very silly and very odd, but it's very Warhammer. Um, and, yeah, the gyrocopters in particular, are, they're almost game-breaking. Um, I mean, the wizards you know, are game-breaking in a different way, but the gyrocopters, as long as you keep, keep control of the gyrocopter and micromanage it, it can pretty much kill anything on the battlefield or run away from anything on the battlefield because it's super fast. So, yeah, it's, um, it's very odd. Is that how you ended up cheesing through a lot of the campaign? <laughs> I remember just running the gyrocopter around behind any every time there was artillery you send the gyrocopter up to deal with it because it'll just you fly it up it you steam, steam cannon the artillery a few times the artillery dies and somebody else one of the other units tries charging a gyrocopter and the gyrocopter just runs away and then when you need to leave it you just go and fly into the a corner of the battlefield and leave it alone because otherwise they will hunt it down and kill it because it's so deadly by itself but you can't leave it alone anyway because it can't defend itself it's attack only yeah but i do remember using it far too much the, the other thing that is really fun about this game is just Warhammer games live and die by flavor. If you don't, if, you know, if you're just a Warhammer game with the units, but you don't really have the over-the-top sensibilities of Warhammer, I consider it kind of a failed Warhammer game. So, like, my, one of my examples par excellence is, is sort of like what Relic ended up doing with the Space Marines, right? Where they're all just ridiculously overdone, overblown. They all uh, declaim their lines in every, you know, in every game. Strike from the sky, brothers! And it's it's just absolutely irresistible. And uh, I feel like this has that as well, but it's also this delightful, like, yeah, it's the, it's the Warhammer fantasy universe. It's uh, the Warhammer take on on Tolkien. It's the Warhammer take on the Thirty Years' War. And there's there's a few things that I, I, I really enjoy here. And, and part of it is um, it starts even when, when you're reading the manual. 
because the the manual is in the tradition of your typical Warhammer codex, right? Where you're reading the manual and it's like the manual is part of the game because the manual is telling you where your character is coming from and, and you're this disgraced nobleman and here's how you got your magic sword and here here are your ambitions. Uh, and so there's the, these little like adventurous vignettes from your life as a mercenary uh, in the manual. Uh, and then you're 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 playing the campaign on this um on this version of the Warhammer fantasy world you're sort of on the the frontiers of of the uh, the, the the empire uh basically and it's got that it's got that very cool like you are on the very edges of this crap version of the Holy Roman Empire uh and it, it's it, it's it's got it, it's got that neat that neat feel of like you know everything is sort of falling apart in this world and that's where Warhammer lives everything is about to collapse always in a Warhammer story yeah, yeah, but everything's going to collapse. But the the empire just somehow persists. The dwarves somehow survive in their mountain strongholds. The elves they're, they're fading away. They still seem to do keep the dark elves at bay and the forces of chaos at bay. Every now and then, there's a huge chaos invasion and hordes of monstrosities pour out of the poles of the earth and rush down towards the empire and are always stopped at the last minute. Uh, apart from in the last version of Warhammer, which they've just released, where apparently they didn't get stopped and the Warhammer world was destroyed and they made a new game on that basis. So it's, um, yeah, but apart from that, normally everything is just teetering on the brink and everybody is just teetering on the brink from the, the richest nobleman to the poorest peasant in the world. They're all just about about to fall. Um, it, yeah, it gives it, it's, it, it is the Holy Roman Empire, you're right. It's, it's, the, the, it's that the, the bankers and the fuggers backing armies which then pay the money back and it just needs war just keeps going because th there's no reason not to keep fighting that everybody has a reason to fight all the time yeah that's that's warhammer really yeah and you you have everyone's working for noblemen who are working for their own ends and yeah it's it's terrific mm -hmm. stuff the warhammer yeah i wanted to ask you about this just because i've been sort of morbidly curious about it um I know I have, uh, you know, a, f a friend of mine who has refused to acknowledge pretty much any changes they made to the Warhammer fantasy lore since the nineties. Yeah. Uh, so he's like, no, the empire is not this noble, you know, protective shield <laughs> against the civilization. The empire is this corrupt, badly led, rotting corpse of a. So that's that's his empire, right? And apparently they they retconned yeah. it so that the emperor stopped being the sort of late Roman, you know failure of an empire uh, emperor and more of a uh, classic mm -hmm. heroic figure right okay. and then which is the opposite yeah the opposite of the 40k universe where the emperor there seems to be a hero and then he realizes he's just a kind of zombie monstrosity sitting on a throne absorbing thousands of souls every day yeah anyway yeah on. uh yeah he is the zombie zombie emperor um but then okay so so the warhammer fantasy uh, the warhammer fantasy universe was effectively like wiped clean this this last revision yeah, there was a thing called The End Times, and apparently, I've not been playing it recently, but they've released a uh, a new game called, I think, Age of Sigmar, which is all about, this is after The End Times, and it's the, the god of the Empire, who's Sigmar, who's a uh, kind of human god who has wields a big hammer and uh, is all about kind of beating up chaos, and against the chaos gods in a kind of other realm. Uh, I've not looked into it much, but basically that's what it sounds like, that they've, they've killed off the Warhammer universe. Mm. And then they're going to slowly import all the armies from that Warhammer universe into this new game. 
Oh, that's interesting and very, very strange. I can't imagine that went over well. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've no. not been looking at the forums and I've not played it, but um, it's it's a little suspicion with Warhammer every now and then that uh, they're just trying to get you to buy more models. But <laughs> yeah, pretty <laughs> but well founded. Pretty, the models are the, yeah, it's a good idea, and the models are pretty and they're very well made and they're very expensive. So uh, people, you know, people buy them or they don't buy them. So okay, so I, one of the people I wanted to get for the show was um, Kieran Gillen, just because this this mm-hmm. game sort of centers on the the Skaven, uh, and yes. so if if, <laughs> if you've read any Rock Paper Shotgun ever, uh, you know that you, you know that, that that site is practically sponsored by the Skaven. Uh, so tell me a little bit about sort of the 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 overarching plot of uh, of Shadow of the Horned Rat and and why these odd rat people end up being this iconic race in, in the Warhammer fantasy universe. I think, I, I mean, originally they weren't involved in it. They, uh, they appeared relatively late on in the, well, I'm, I'm quite old now, but <laughs> it feels like to me, they appeared relatively late on the Skaven, but um, they are a race of rat men who uh, kind of undermine the empire. They live in the tunnels underneath the old world and they, they're endlessly plotting and, sending out assassins and searching for a material called Warpstone, which is kind of pure chaos. Um, so <laughs> they're, uh, they're kind of evil and they speak in a silly voice. And yes, as you write, Kieran loves them. Um, in Shadow of the Horned Rat, uh, Bernhardt is uh, trying to stop a Greyseer called Thankwall, who's a classic Warhammer character, um, from... Uh, Get using this warpstone to do something terrible and to destroy somebody and have it, 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 it just basically a terrible plot and I think it involves bringing an orc, a possessed orc war boss down as well so you, that's why you're fighting orcs and you're fighting Skaven um, but yes and basically you're a mercenary so you've got to go and try and defeat this huge Skaven empire and all these armies and all these orc armies and all of these Skaven armies whilst trying to balance your books so it's a, a very funny game because all the time he's going to, Bernhardt's going to go, yeah, okay, yeah, I know I need to go and save those people, but actually if I go and do this, I'll have, I'll have a lot more money and, and we'll be on a better financial footing. This, this, game, this game comes out and then Mindscape, did, did Mindscape do much else? I, I, can't, I feel like I know that name, but I... Uh, the, yeah, I think they did a lot of games, actually. Um, I'm trying to remember myself. Um, they were a relatively big publisher in, in that era, but I, I think a lot of their stuff was republished in the US by EA. Right, and yeah, I'm not sure I see a ton of development that they, they did. Yeah, so so yeah, so Mindscape is um, behind a lot of those. Yeah, they're classic, I guess, early '90s software companies uh, where they're making games, but they're also making like instructional software, uh, but. So th- this game comes out and it just it it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to take and yet I I feel like nowadays you see a lot more games sort of operating in in that tradition and that's not just because Warhammer's gotten bigger but also mm. al- also because it seems like a lot of those ideas uh, I you know either they they sort of grew up naturally again uh, or mm. somehow sort of got filtered through the industry I'm, I'm I'm kind of curious you know what you think about that. 
Uh, yeah, I think they grew up naturally again, because as you say, most people don't seem to have played this game, uh, or Dark Omen. Dark Omen was uh, the game, the last game that Mindscape made before they were swallowed up by EA. So um, that could be why the series died. Maybe the license didn't transfer. But yes, uh, a lot of people haven't played the game, So, and a lot of people who worked on the game uh, seem to have left the industry. Like, I looked them up before we came on the show, and the only ones who, st- who were still in the industry went and worked on Harry Potter games for 10 years, and now they're all internal EA. So it looks like they were they were bought in and they were moved on to other things, and they never got to do strategy games again, uh, or maybe they didn't want to. Um, and then people didn't play the game, so there's no way to inherit it. But yeah, I mean, we've been a bit negative about aspects of the game, like its difficulty, but the story's crazily good fun. Uh, it's wonderfully hammy voice acting. The griminess of that hand-drawn art is so beautifully done in the intro sequence, and then throughout the game, the way it all just feels like it's all part of a world. Yeah, it's it's sad it didn't really have a heritage, but um, it has been replicated by, notably, the Shogun Total War, which then led to the whole Total War series. Yeah, and uh, do you think? Um, well, here, here's here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. I certainly have high hopes for to uh, for Total War Warhammer, um, mm-hmm. but at at the, at the same time, I I do kind of wonder like yeah I, I I I kind of wonder about like I kind of wonder if we'll see a game get like. Warhammer as right as as we see this game getting Warhammer right, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, it's difficult at the moment. I think there, there have been an awful lot of games licensed recently by Games Workshop, and I think the the the, the, the judges are out whether they're going to be good or bad, and whether they fit the universe properly. Yeah, this this game did get the universe absolutely wonderfully. Um, the Space Hulk games from EA, as I said, in the, the 90s also got it really perfectly. And even something like um, the Warhammer MMO, uh, I've forgotten the name of it, but that was that was a, that was actually quite a good representation of Warhammer humor, Warhammer art style, Warhammer combat not so much. But there have been games that have got it right. And I, I, having seen what the Creative Assembly guys did with Alien Isolation, I think they've shown they can be flexible. Yes. It's just a matter of whether the uh, the total war team can be flexible and can make this work. Uh, and it's such an unbalanced combat system. The fact that you have these these wizards who, if they're lucky and if there isn't an opposing wizard styming their efforts, can destroy entire units in a turn and can do that every turn of the battle. The heroes on can ride down on a dragon and wipe out entire units, expensive units. Or a hero can fight another hero and kill him in a second. That's half your army's value gone. It's a very unbalanced game in those senses, but it's um, it's all about super weapons and and getting that edge. Um, so I think total, I think total, what's it called? Total War Warhammer. Total Warhammer. I think it can it can probably do it, but we need to. And the last time I saw it, it seemed like it had the right ethos, but it was still very early. Um, it, for, yeah. me, for me, it's less the battles, because the battles are the easy thing. Um, they already have most of it in there. They've shown they can do the flying creatures. They've shown they can do the monsters. For me, it's more that metagame. How do you make that metagame? How do you make that overarching civilization-style narrative uh, fit Warhammer? How do you get that feeling that the Empire is constantly under siege, that the orcs can just go anywhere and just 
do things willy-nilly for fun, that the Skaven are plotting under the world they aren't. They don't have a visible cityscape. These are all much more difficult than the battle sequences. I feel like um, one of our old friends on the show, Bill, I think it was Bill Abner, uh, mm. would say that Warhammer is interesting because they've never really, like, the Warhammer tabletop games have never actually been great games in, in, in a lot of ways. They're not, they're, it's not a particularly well-designed system in a lot of ways. Like you said, it's, mm -hmm. it's wildly unbalanced. Um, it's got this sort of, it's not an American game, but it's certainly sort of what, what, what's called like an Ameritrash ethos, right? Where if there's, if there's a yeah, problem, yeah. you just throw more dice at it. Uh, you know, you can <laughs> always have another combat resolution table uh, to, to have people referring to. But yeah. the interesting thing is when, like when you, when you adapt it, you 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 have the you have this dual challenge of you have to get the way the units feel correct, but then sometimes how they feel just has to be completely unbalanced. Now, obviously, Shadow of the Horned Rat solution is just to let the units be unbalanced. That's why there's so many glass cannons in the game. If this mm -hmm. works out well, this unit will just nuke the enemy, uh, but it can also just be killed in a split second if you look away. Mm -hmm. And then it ba and it balances that with the the cost of replenishing any unit. So even if something's not a glass cannon, like the infantry or the grudge bringers or uh, the other cavalry in the game, if you lose a few of them, then it's just you just go, okay, it's not. I have to load. I can't keep this going. Yeah. yeah. But w then when you when you adapt that to a computer game, and especially like Total War, where everyone's going to be playing probably all, all, all the major races. You're, mm -hmm. you're sort of obligated. You're sort of obligated to balance it out a little bit. So you're, you're sort of forced into making this choice between like making something that's that's sort of faithful to the uh, to the spirit of Warhammer, or making something that feels like it's properly balanced and has gone through sort of modern like balance testing. I think the way that they have to do it is through that meta game, is through that overarching um, civilization interface. And the, making it about the cost of those units, because what you don't have in the War well, Warhammer tabletop game is you have a points cost. And you might have a thousand points to build an army, and a, a, a soldier might cost ten points, uh, and a giant might cost two hundred points. And so you're going, okay, well, that means that you know you're going to get twenty soldiers for a giant. Great. Um, that points cost isn't going to transfer to the meta game. So what they're probably going to be doing is going, okay, a giant's going to cost you this much gold, and he's going to be this far up the tech tree. So you're not going to be seeing giants very often. You, you know, the orcs are going to be using orcs. I'll be using orc boys, and I'll be using boar boys and goblins because that's more effective and more cost-efficient. So they'll they'll manage that unbalance through financial limits, I'm guessing, the same way they do in, yeah. in to Rome Total War. Yeah. That, that's, that's a good point, and that's probably, I think, probably one of the enduring frustrations with the Total War series is the way they have increasingly leaned on cost to sort of balance out the games. Uh, because yeah. it does mean that a lot of your really cool units you just can't really build. And the like I would say in the last few Total War games, the big limitation is the AI can just sort of spam armies, and you struggle to fill one army uh, with, with, mm -hmm. with decent troops. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that's applied to Warhammer. All right, so I want to talk to you about the the closing stages of Shadow of the Horned Rat because I certainly wasn't able to get that far in the game. 
Uh, it is it is a really difficult game. But one of the things that sticks out in my memory is that reviews at the time said the game was nigh uncompletable. That the game culminates in this uh, massive siege battle. That you know, even for the impressive standards of like the the Shadow of the Horned Rat was, was sort of setting at the time was sort of bigger and crazier than anything you'd seen in the game to that point as well. But that it was also practically unbeatable unless you'd done the campaign perfectly. And I, I'm curious if you can, you know, you you managed to do it. Did you, did you ever figure <laughs> out, like, how to break the game in a way that you were able to sort of come in for a, you know, glide in for an easy landing? Or is that is that last mission uh, brutal in its own right? Uh. It's brutal in its own right. I think there were tactics that worked throughout the game, uh, being defensive, sending out your fast units to lure the enemy out. Uh, the enemy's AI wasn't always brilliant, so you could always pull them in. And that, that last battle is just hundreds of tough Skaven units coming at you, uh, and you using all the units you can put on the battlefield, which is not not all of them. But um, yeah, uh, you can. Yeah, you can stick a, you stick a couple of wizards there. You put your, all your cannons out. I think you have what two or three cannons by that point, um, and you use uh, the wizard spells to slow enemies down so they get stuck. And then when they get stuck, there's a it, it kind of gets they get stuck on each other. So if you slow one of the front enemies down, the others have to kind of go around him, and it slows everything down. And then you're blast then they're closing in on each other, and you're blasting them with cannons and mortars at that point. Yeah, they 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 tend to die, um, but still, you're still going to have to play that battle three or four times, even playing cheaply, to um, to have a chance uh, to to kill everybody off. Um, I think the Amber Wizard in particular is absolutely central for Mortimer because he's the wizard who start, you start the game with, and by that point in the game he's completely leveled up, so he's got all of the spells he can possibly have, and he can basically do things like teleport himself around the map, then throw. Spears which kill off heroes and then teleport back if you've got enough magic oh points. God. So you're kind of waiting for him to get enough magic to do his stupid uh, teleport, kill everything, fly back thing. Um, and I think he's also one of the slowdown curse. I think it's called Curse of Anra here or Tangled Third or Pawn or something like that. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's <laughs> it's a tough final battle, but yeah, it's like it was. It's just a game of its era and. It was a game that made made you really fight for every ounce of value from it. But it did mean you got an awful lot of value from the game. I mean, I must have put hundreds of hours into this game, and the same for the Space Hulk games. Uh, and that meant, you know, I only had to buy two games <laughs> in that time. And in so, those days, that mattered. That really mattered, yeah. yeah. When we were poor students. We've referred to it a couple times, and I wasn't even aware there, there really was a follow-on. Uh, but tell me a little bit about Dark omen to, like because a lot of times the second game is a lot better right because you learn all the lessons and you apply it does dark omen evoke similar fond memories or was it missing some magic factor for you uh i think it i, I think it, I, I had similar memories i just remember i couldn't play it because i didn't have a graphic card and my friend did and he had a much better computer than me so i had to watch him play it so I didn't get to play so much of it, um, or see as much of it as I would have liked, but what I remember about it, I just remember it looking stunning for the time, which nowadays probably means it looks really horrible and clunky, but um, I seem to remember it was you were fighting against the undead this time, mm -hmm. uh, and there was some undead lord who'd come back to life, and there were lots of battles against necromancers who were absolute buggers to kill, 
um, because it meant there were you know wizards in most of the missions, um, and then you're dealing with the undead who I think in the Warhammer universe all cause fear. So you get your men, your troops are running away quite a lot. Um, yeah, morale is a was a big thing in that one. I seem to remember. But as I say, it's been years since I played that, and I mo- mostly mostly watched it over friends' shoulder. Yeah. Uh, that's actually another thing that was sort of forward looking about this game is that there are hero units on the battlefield, uh, and I'm not sure we saw that really used to that much effect until like. Mm, Warcraft three, um, oh yeah, I was thinking Warcraft three, almost almost the same kind of thing, isn't it? It's like overpowered hero units. Um, yeah, yeah, and Warcraft three was inspired. By, well, <laughs> libel lawyers aside, uh, <laughs> <laughs> one might say that Warcraft seems to have been inspired quite heavily by Warhammer, um, and these heroes in Warcraft three really feel like the heroes in Warhammer, um, and then obviously that has inspired Dota. So. And League of Legends, so you could you could argue that the biggest games of our day have come from these kinds of Warhammer heroes we see in this game. Yeah, and that it, it was just another interesting thing that I was out there on the like yeah you know early battles I'm out there on the battlefield and I'm realizing like oh my my hero has a magic sword, uh, and I can fire that thing off and sort of turn the tide of battle at this at this key moment. Uh, and that's not something you saw in tactical games or RTS games until ages and ages later. And it's this, uh, it's it's yet another thing that uh, that exists in this game. It's like the, this this game anticipates so much of what's going to follow, but mm-hmm. there's still this complete like discontinuity between it and the strategy games play, we play now. I think a lot of that's down to it being draw. It draws on such a rich lore and a rich uh, the mechanics of the Warhammer. Gate, battle, battlefield game, as unbalanced as they were, they they were very deep mechanics. I mean, if you put artillery units too close to each other in this game, they have a, a larger chance of exploding the closer they are to each other for some reason, uh, and completely you can completely destroy your game because you mean you can be doing really well, but you kind of clustered your artillery too close to each other because it's only there's only one hill on your side of the battlefield, uh, and it can all blow up, and it's just like okay, well that's a realistic aspect of artillery and it means it's trying to use a mechanic to prevent you clustering them so you can't take advantage of that one usable spot um yeah i think the other tactical elements uh, the tactical innovations were interesting like the realistic missile fire um they are, there's so much complexity in it but they're drawn mainly from the the tabletop game the, the one last thing i kind of wanted to ask about is I referred to it earlier, but it feels like in in the 90s we had all these games that were about being a small business owner in addition to being like a warlord. And (laughs) I don't know what it was about that era, but that was like the way a lot of games were structured. It was around this idea of you had to recruit people and they cost money. You had to equip your soldiers and that cost money. You had to like the the entire structure of the game was about running, running this business. And and this is certainly, you know, in that tradition. Uh, But I'm not sure like for like, I'm not sure for what reason that became kind of an unpopular model. Cause I, I feel like, okay. in, in the total war games, you're, you're, you're commanding an empire. And, and so money's a limitation mm-hmm. that way, but there, but there's no, that there, there's none of this like small businessman, uh, warlord Sims <laughs> that, that we see in the nineties anymore. And I'm, I, I, I'm curious, like why, why did we, why do you think we had so many games that were sort of trying to evoke this strange fantasy? 
uh, I think it was just people trying to simulate something that interested them uh, and being a mercenary captain interested me. It reminds me of uh, Pizza Tycoon, where you're a small businessman who's also who can also be a mafia boss if you want to be, and you can do the it's the other way around. Oh my god, like I had to put that it. game. <laughs> you know, you, you can go and buy bombs and flamethrowers and things in that game, which are disguised as ice cream, and then go and attack other people's restaurants. Uh, or you can spend all your time making really good-looking pizzas and winning pizza competitions. So, um, yeah, I, it's, I think it was uh, more just that there were people trying lots of different things out, um, like the indie boom at the moment. But you're right, the indie boom at the moment doesn't really focus on small businessmen. I don't know why that is. I can't think of any games. Maybe Resetitia, the we- or the weapon shop yeah. game, or um, the Potato Smith, which as a thing is a recent a game where you're you're, um, you're a potato person in the potato world, and you're making weapons for heroes. Again, those those kind of things. You're a small businessman. You're managing a small group of people. Possibly retreated into the management simulator, and that's been separated off quite a lot from this combat simulator. I couldn't say why yeah. that would be. Yeah, no, that that maybe makes a lot of sense. It could just be with dis- such disparate audiences. I mean, Big Pharma, which is a, a, a game from uh, Cliff Harris's Positec company, uh, that game is a game entirely about generating drugs, and it's a small business game. You you, know, you, you make a little factory, and you make you make drugs, and you harvest rare insects and plants, and you turn them into drugs. And but you know they don't really feel like then sending you out to use those drugs in the field and you don't have people you hire to dis- deploy those drugs, which might be fun, but it might not appeal to that audience. And it's also, it's a lot of feature creep. Yeah. I also wonder if, if to a degree, there was just sort of a, um, you know, the, the 90, the nineties boom, right? Like, you know, it was, it was sort of mm-hmm. this, this, this global economic boom. And I kind of wonder if also the, just the, the, the fantasy of sort of the up by your bootstraps, uh, you know, warlord was maybe a little more compelling then. Also, they had to find a way to tell these stories to make games about things at this certain scale, right? Like you had to come up with a reason why you weren't commanding thousands of soldiers, and entire armies, yeah. you were commanding squads of soldiers, a dozen at a time. And I suppose the the mercenary conceit was a really easy way to explain why you were operating at this scale and not sort of at the imperial scale that you'd be operating at in uh, games like Total War. It's, it's definitely a more tactically interesting scale as well, because it does mean things like uh, Silent Storm, you know. All of your people are valuable, XCOM. All of your people are valuable. In this game, everybody's valuable. In Total War, you lose a regiment. You're kind of a little bit upset, but you're not that upset. Most of the time, unless you're playing on a hardcore difficulty level, you know you're going to get them back. Civilization, you lose a unit, whatever. Unless you're playing on a very high difficulty level, you're going to survive it. These games, losing people was not survivable. Jagged Alliance losing somebody wasn't survivable. Operation Flashpoint, uh, Hidden and Dangerous. These were all games where you wanted to keep your people going all the way through the game, mainly because they, they also leveled up and they became yeah. much better the longer they survived. Yeah. Um, was it you, when you left your Grudgebringer infantry to uh, to die? Was that was that emotionally <laughs> difficult moment for you? Because like you said, like by that point you had better units, you could spare them. I couldn't imagine where I'm at in the game being able to just throw the Grudgebringers away. I can't imagine being able to do that. But I, I'm curious, just as a just from the standpoint of you've dragged these guys through all these missions, was sending mm-hmm. them to make the last stand a difficult choice? Yes. Uh, as, as you say, they're, they're one of the best units in the game. 
Uh, I think it was just that they were the only unit that was slow enough that they were one of the choices I had to make uh, about who to leave behind. Um, they were tough enough to survive for long enough, um, and that I had enough units at that point that I could consider sacrificing one. And I'd played the mission so many bloody times that I had to get on with yeah. it and finish this mission. And I just couldn't see any other way of doing it without losing someone. Did you ever discover if there was another way to do it? Like, or, or was that kind of your final exam as a mercenary commander when you just like, <laughs> now you've learned the harshest lesson of war? <laughs> you have to leave someone behind. I think, I think there is a way of doing it. Um, I don't know what it is. I, I would probably should go back and read a walkthrough and I'll probably the walkthrough will say, you use your Amber Wizard and your Amber Wizard does this and he does that and he slows everyone down and then he teleports everyone away and then he kills Gracia Thankwell by himself and kills all Skaven and everybody loves him and, and Commander Bernhardt retires, sadly. <laughs> um, but I, it didn't happen for me. Yeah. It was just a very difficult, horrible battle. I mean, the fact I remember it 20 years later, a single battle in, in this game. Yeah, it was, it was quite tough. It's a tough game. Yeah, I, and I enjoy it for that toughness. I definitely, I definitely enjoyed sort of. I, I've enjoyed trying to play it. I've been frustrated with it more than I thought I would. You know, I thought I, I thought I was ready for for being for this much of a throwback. But it is, it is a difficult game to play both in terms of interface, but then also it's just um, the mission design is so diabolical uh, that it's really <laughs> like. It's it's such a different design ethos from what we see today, where you know mm -hmm. you try it once, twice, and the third time you get it if if it's a particularly difficult mission. And this mm -hmm. is yeah, this is meant for you know young people of the '90s who this is the game that's going to last them six months. Uh, so by all yeah. means, <laughs> remove the safeties. That reminds me, did you when in the missions you played, did you find any more magical items? Uh, no, I did not. Because I think on almost every map, there's a hidden magic item. And I you didn't need, find a lot any. Of them you, uh, <laughs> a lot of them you need to kind of to bolster your units to finish the game. Wait, um, so, so like when, I finish, uh, when I finish beating up the enemy, I shouldn't be going right back to camp? Do I need to, like, scour the map? I can't remember how each mission ends. I mean, does it end itself? When no, there's, the a little, there's a little tent button. So you route all the enemies, and then your troops are just mm -hmm. sitting there on the map with nothing to do. And some, of, yes, some some of the magic items are like hidden inside houses. Some are hidden behind trees. It's like some, I think you have to. Some are dropped by particular units. That kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So basically, it kind of incentivizes you to destroy every bloody thing oh on the map Lord. to try and try and find uh, a new banner. And there's some banners which are like crazily powerful. There's some, you know, you'll find a lot of potions of strength lying around, which you quite often need to kill things like trolls or giants. Um, yeah, there's a lot of hidden content oh there, which God. is almost essential to finishing the game. Every, I'm telling you, <laughs> every modern game trend is in this game. This is, this is like the <laughs> this is like the foundation work of, of games that nobody knows about. Like this is collect the uh, what is it the the, the penance in Assassin's Creed. Um, yes, exactly. Well, no, I did not know that, and that is uh, troubling information because. <laughs> Boy, I do not feel like scouring maps after some of those missions, but uh, and and very interesting that you you're sort of almost required to have them, but that seems very much like that game. Yeah, it's it's totally in line with your expectations of the game. I mean, if they could make it any harder, if they could tie your arm around behind your back to play the game, they would. Yeah. Uh, that does it for this episode of Three Moves Ahead. This episode is produced by Michael Hermes and is hosted as a part of the Idle Thumbs Network. 
I should also announce that I just launched another podcast alongside my colleague Andrew Gruen called Esports Today, which is also hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. It's a short weekly podcast that surveys the major news and professional gaming for a more casual general esports audience. And you can find that at esports.today. You can follow both podcasts at the Idle Thumbs Network at idlethumbs.net, where you can also discuss these episodes with our community at the Idle Thumbs forums. We'll be back next week with another edition of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.